Well, I have a list of questions I've uh, aggregated, and we can just start going through them. You ready? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. Focus on something a little different. Yeah. I got some cool info at the end, too, based on a lot of the calls here, you know, yesterday and today, uh, about the future of concrete. We'll but, get to uh, that. We'll get to that. We can talk about that at the end. That's question number five. You ready? Okay. I am. Number one. The benefits and drawbacks of using concrete countertops and sinks in kitchens and bathrooms and how they compare to other materials. So the benefits and drawbacks of using concrete in kitchens and bathrooms and how they compare to other materials. What are the benefits of using concrete, John? Well, see, to me, I guess I would have to split those individually. Because if we're talking kitchen sinks, yeah, I, I, I mean been down this road long enough to say in my experienced opinion using concrete even the highest quality uhpc yada 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 i am just not comfortable with the overall wear on a kitchen sink unless and here's the big unless unless you have a client that truly loves you know, the, the kind of worn, you know, the worn appearance that ultimately happens with the minor erosion. So that would be only my caveat to sinks. Uh, countertops, on the other hand, benefit. Well, gosh, I mean, I guess based on what I do, benefit is, uh, it sounds horrible, but cliche-ish. I can do anything. I mean, I can do any shape, any thickness, any, I hate to say it, length. Um, but in this case, if I was doing cast in place, yeah, no seams, no nothing, any texture, edge. I mean, that's that to me is the biggest benefit, at least in that comparison to stone. And the other, I mean, to me, one a huge benefit to anything else out there, whether we're talking, you know, quartz, granite, whatever, is that concrete is such how do I say this just it's just such an amazing natural living material that nothing else compares to yeah customization I mean concrete is is really the ultimate custom customizable material you can do anything I mean if you look at dusty what he's doing these massive 16 foot by 10 foot islands it's insane you can't do that with other materials and especially with the colors and texture and movement. And it's just, it's incredible. And it's all one piece. Sinks, you know, I agree with you. Kitchen sinks, I, I, I'm not a big fan of. Although when you do the stainless bottom in them, because that's where all the damage happens, yeah. the bottom. When people sure. do that, mm-hmm. I, I know that uh, Martin Haddock did that recently. But when you do this, the stainless bottom, I think that mitigates 95% of the problems with a kitchen sink. And there's ways. Yeah, I'd probably hire it. I'd say 98. Okay. Well, maybe maybe 98.1. I don't know, but it's somewhere in there. 0.37. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that takes out a lot of the problems with sinks. And um, there's ways to do that. I saw how Martin did it. I have ideas on how to do it. And this next year, I hope to bring some of that stuff to market. But I think that takes care of kitchen sinks. But bathroom sinks, you know, that's I've been doing that for a long time, bathroom sinks. And the benefit of it is anything, the sky's the limit. We can do fabric formed. Right. We can do, I mean, just anything you can imagine we can do. And it's funny because the things we were doing 
2005, 2006, 2007, you now see those same designs in Starbucks, in Love's Truck Stops, right. in Subway. Yeah. You know, you go in these places mm-hmm. and they have these ramp sinks with slot trains at the airport, but they're done in Corian yeah. or sometimes granite. But those are very kind of fixed designs where with concrete, because it's fluid and formable, you can do anything. And, you know, there's uh, solid surfaces like Corian, Hymax, um, all those materials. And they're thermoformable, meaning they can heat them up and then lay them over a, a formed crate, a sink. But it's still limited. Because with yeah. concrete being being castable in the way that it is, we can do things that they can't do. So it's really the ultimate customizable material. And I think that's really the benefit of it. And then the handcrafted aspect. You know, all these other materials, for the most part, are kind of production materials uh, where they're CNC'd and uh, there's not a whole, whole lot of craftsmanship that goes into it anymore. Whereas concrete really is truly a, a handcrafted artisan material. And so there's a lot more that goes into it. And I think that translates in the end to the, I don't know if luxury is the right word, but the uh, the high-end aspect of the material. It's definitely a difference between Corian and concrete when you look at them. You can just feel... Oh, no question. ...the difference in value and, and craftsmanship. And concrete. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think that, that translates as well. And architects and designers understand that, and that's why they specify these materials on, on high-end projects. Downsides. Well, I want to touch on one more oh. major benefit. Okay. And, and I guess at the end of the day, it really depends on what a person's into, right? So if you pull up my son, actually, lately he's looking, I don't know, he's writing a paper or something on uh, libraries. And so we pull up all these libraries old libraries, you know, 1800s, 1900s, different ones from around the world. And I don't know who's in agreement here, but when you look at some of these with the old timber and, you know, the original woods, um, these amazing craftsmanship, and you look at them and you go, wow. Same with furniture or any piece. You know, I think we've talked about it before, but as an example, there's a big difference to trim out your house in you know, solid wood, authentic wood than using, you know, Azek press board. That's the way I look at concrete. Concrete is such, and I know, you you know, it's an artisan material, but comparatively speaking, it's so natural as opposed to the man-made objects. You know what I mean? You're not, so you're not putting MDF down on your countertop. Concrete comes across from a from a feel and a texture and a livable surface, the way light reflects on it. And I realized then, you know, that touches into sealer technology, you know, so a lot depends on, you know, how the final finishes are being done, but just in general, concrete offers an authenticity that other materials just, they can't offer. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big benefit in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking, I'm sitting in my, uh, dining room right now in my house. I'm looking out the window and my neighbors, all these houses were built a hundred years ago and they have gutters and some of the gutters are probably original to the house and it looks really cool. And then it goes into, you know, more modern seamless gutters that are just bent metal. And, um, I was thinking about copper gutters, you know, when you see copper, copper gutters. That's what I was thinking. You might have a lot of copper. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that around here, but I have seen them before. And, uh, that's just a real material. It ages, it yeah. patinas in time, and people value that versus this paint lock aluminum, which won't really age, and it's kind of just kind of look the same cheap material 
for now until, you know, 30, 40 years from now. So there's something to be said for authenticity and, and embracing materials, cedar, copper, uh, concrete, yep. you know, leather, all these materials that age gracefully. There's a lot to be said for that. Drawbacks of using concrete in kitchens and bathrooms. What are drawbacks? Well, I'm going to say there's a, I mean, they're all run right up here. One of the biggest drawbacks is who you're hiring to do it. I mean, we are still talking about a material that whoever is, and again, I'm not going to say who's better or worse. It just depends on the artisan or, or the person being hired to make those tops, which coincidentally kind of goes hand in hand with the materials they might be using, which also happens to go hand in hand with the final expectation of this general thing called a concrete countertop, you know, um, uh, you know, and nothing against the flat work guy. So I'm just going to use that as an example. And to the best of their knowledge, they go to home Depot and they pick up a sackcrete product or, or something like that. And to the best of their ability, they form it and it could look absolutely as amazing as it can look. I get that. And then they seal it with, you know, whatever, you know, what the best they have available at their local hardware store. And it is what it is. And I guess what I'm saying, so that that part of concrete countertops is a big difference between what we call a car, right? I mean, you go all the way to one, a Fiat, which, you know, are fantastic. And for what they are, you know, all the way to a Bugatti, Okay, well, you know, what's a Bugatti? What goes into that? I, I have no idea. I, I know what the price point is, and it's out of my price point. But are we talking about something that ages gracefully and, and lasts a very long time, or something that you picked up based on what you can afford that realistically you're hoping gets 80,000 miles? I get what you're saying. I'm more thinking about the, the, you know, the drawbacks of concrete would be the ability to stain the ability to scratch mm. where, you know, some of these other yeah. materials are probably more life friendly, something like a quartz or even a Corian. Corian can be resurfaced pretty easily. They can come in with sanders and sand it and resurface it. And, you know, that's why they use it in airports and hospitals and places like that mm -hmm. where concrete is more prone to, to damage maybe than other materials, not all materials. I mean, things like marble are, are extremely susceptible to staining. Yeah. See, again, this is where it brings me back to my, what I was trying to say. I, I'm going to both agree and disagree because I know that's the general gist, but the answer to me would be, you know, making that material in a way that makes it similar to maintain as other materials, meaning sure. Can something happen to it? Oh, come on, man. Absolutely. Something, you know, life happens to everything. Um, but can you come in and, and sand it and finish it and, you know, turn a kitchen new or surface new again? Um, or do you have to scrape it solvents? So see what I'm saying? So to me, the both pro and con has as much to do as who's being hired, the material they're using, what the end expectation is. And, and that's kind of a, still a wild card out there. I fully believe everybody's trying to do their best. I, I, I don't think that's a question, but that to me is still the, the wild side of it. We're dealing with a material that does not have really a, 
what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's like granite. Granite has a specification, you know, quartzite. It's made by a company. You can go back, you know, exactly what that material is specified for, what went into it. You get a tag data sheet. That's, that's not concrete countertops. No, I agree with you. I mean, there's, there's definitely levels to this and there's different quality levels and, and all that kind of stuff. But that being said, I would say in general, concrete is considered probably more susceptible to damage isn't the right word, but just more easily damaged than some other materials. You know, with kids, sure. I'm always watching what they're doing. They go in there and they, you know, they spill orange juice all over the countertop. I got to jump up and wipe, walk in there and wipe it with a paper towel. I'm not going to let it set. Whereas if it was silestone, I probably wouldn't care as much. But mm. silestone would be a different aesthetic. It would be this cold, sterile surface, which isn't what sure. I want in my kitchen. But there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off with a real material that that uh, has, you know, organicness to it and it, it feels warm versus something that's cold and sterile that's pretty much just quartz and resin mixed together, which is more, again, kid-friendly. You know, it's just not what I'm going for. You know, like a, a, yeah, a plastic couch is going to be a lot more easy to, to maintain with kids than a leather couch. Sure. Or a cloth couch. Oh, you know, pick up a white cloth couch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is, yeah. you know, you're making trade-offs. But I'd say if we're honest with ourselves, and we should be, that concrete requires more diligence with maintenance and cleaning and not letting things sit on the surface for too long. And if if you do those things, like you leave spaghetti sauce or orange juice or whatever just to dry and you, you know, leave for a long weekend and you come back, you might have some some staining caused by that that you wouldn't have with some other materials. And that's just the truth of the matter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree. I don't know, man. I, you know, just at the end of the day, most of the resin filled stuff will yellow. I mean, there's no secret to that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think when you really, if you pulled up each individual material and went through and listed the cons and, and, and were realistic about all those cons, I'll be honest, I have trouble seeing, you know, Perfect. I think I told you in my cabin, which is, you know, slash my lab years ago, I put, because at the time it was inexpensive, I could afford it. You know, this was me and aim just getting on our feet, <clears throat> moved into Murphy's little remodel. We had a company down in Oakland. And again, oh man, not, you know, we talk about silicosis and all health things, man. If you walked into this shop, <laughs> it was Oh, I mean, it was, when I looked at it, it was cool, but I'm telling you dust all over everything. And it was just a group of guys in there with hand grinders, cutting granite slabs. So anyway, Ubatuba, that's what I have in there. And it's been in there, I guess it was 25 years ago. Yeah. 2000. What do you have in there? You cut out for a half second. What do you have? Ubatuba. Ubatuba. Yeah, it's called Ubatuba. It's a green, huh. right? All it's right, like Oompa Yeah, right. And in the years that we lived there and the kids, because it's just a cabin, so I actually, the peninsula, I know they're trying to go along with this. The peninsula, peninsula ended up the dining table and the kids sat there. You hooked, you know, the high chair. I'm telling you, there's scratches all along that bar top, which was our, you know, dining top up until we moved out when I think Jay was one years old. And 
you know, after now me being in there for the remainder time as a lab, I'll be honest, I don't treat it with kid gloves. So there's all kinds of areas now with rings and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Treated. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm not seeing that granite as some indestructible level of something that I can't, that I do not have the means to get a concrete countertop close to that performance. Well, I agree with granite. I'm not really even thinking about granite. I'm thinking more about the quartz surfaces and uh, the salt surfaces like Corian, which are mm. resin, only because they're easily renewable. Not the quartz yeah. so much. The quartz isn't easily renewable. I mean, that is what it is. But right. the Corian surfaces, um, high max and all those different materials, they just come in with a sander, sand off that top little bit, and then, you know, go through sure. progressively finer and, and essentially renew it and it's gone. So scratches, yeah. stains, things like that. It's a little bit easier. But kind it of looks, like what people do with soapstone. Yeah. Yeah, but it looks so cheap. You know, it looks so dated too. It feels like very 1980s. In 1980s, that was a luxury. You know, maybe yeah. the early 90s. But, um, you know, when I go in a house now and it has like white and now they're kind of creamy because you're right, they do yellow. Mm-hmm. But Corian countertops, it, to me, it feels cheap. It doesn't feel luxurious, doesn't feel high-end. Granite feels cheap to me. You right. know? Well, you just touched on something. Timeless. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's another benefit of, uh, again, I'm going to put it in a, a concrete, uh, timeless. You could go into places, and I know we're talking countertops and vanities, you know, go into places, looking back at the Owani Hotel in Yosemite, and you can still go into some of those rooms. I mean, these are concrete vanities and tops that were made in you know, the early 1900s when they, when they put that hotel in there. Now it's called the Awani Hotel again. Uh, I think they were trying to call it Yosemite Hotel for a while. But, uh, so it's timeless. And you, could st- you still go in there and like, man, how nice these are. Have they aged? Yep. You know, after darn near 100 years. Um, but they're timeless. Same yeah. thing you say, a fireplace surround or, or these kind of things that are made out of that kind of material – uh, much more timeless than if those had been made with a, a quartzite or a silestone or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, question number two, John. Mm-hmm. The different techniques and tools used to create concrete countertops and sinks, such as casting, polishing, and coloring. The different techniques and tools used to create concrete countertops and sinks. Well, I mean, it really depends on this question. It really depends on on your method of uh, casting. So for me, I only do SEC GFRC for everything. And I've been doing that for a long time now. I don't spray. I don't don't do any of that stuff. So for me, I could get by with a Colomix X06 handheld mixer. Or if I'm doing a lot of mix, I use uh, an Imer. I have an Imer 360. But you could use an Imer 120 Plus. Dusty has a couple of them. He does them back and forth, keeps them going. But uh, essentially, all I need is a scale to weigh ingredients, a mixer, and a casting table. And there's not a whole lot to it. There's not a whole lot of tools you need. You need to be able to build your forms. That's been another question that's kind of popped up. I've seen on forums, people are asking, like, how do you build forms? Um, You know, melamine is what I use. Some people use steel. Some people use plastic, HDPE, polycarbonate, things like that. But you need a way to cut the wood. For me, a Festool track saw is the easiest way. You know, I've always thought I could go anywhere in the world with a Festool track saw, a Columix X06, 
a um, Craig pocket screw jig. They come in a little kit you can get at Home Depot or Lowe's. It's like 120 bucks, and a uh, a drill impact driver. And with those four tools and a, and a scale, I need a scale. So let's say six, five tools. With those five tools, I could travel anywhere in the world and build pretty much anything. You know, yeah. all the other tools make it a little bit easier. They they make things a little bit quicker and faster. But for the most part, that's all you need to get started. And, and the investment in that isn't that much for a business. I mean, you're talking a few thousand bucks, which isn't horrible. Now, if you're going to do spray GFRC, which I used to do, you need to get a big air compressor. You might want to get an air dryer because when I was in Phoenix, my compressor was putting a ton of moisture in the lines and oil in the lines. And, you know, that would come out uh, in the, in the uh, sprayer. But that's really the, the only difference is if you're doing sprayed, you need to get uh, a big air compressor. You need to get a hopper gun. That's like 110, 120 bucks. But there's not a whole lot more to that. What about you, John? No, I, you hit the head. That question is wide open. It, uh, it just depends on where a person thinks they want to start and what that investment needs to get them started. I've, I mean, I still see a lot, and I think they're gorgeous. Um, Gosh, what's his name? Uh, Bill Cote, I think, recently posted a picture of a table that he made. It was gorgeous. In my opinion, it was gorgeous. Uh, very terrazzo. You know what I mean? Well, well, aside from everything you just talked about there, I mean, he could clearly cast that tabletop with a fairly minimal amount of tooling. A hand mixer, a bucket, mixed materials, maybe something pre-blended or even, in his case, a terrazzo. If but now you're going to need something to cut, you know, cut down into all that, a polisher of some sort, multiple pads, and it's going to need water. So depending on where you're at, you need a, a, an area outside that's, that you can process wet or inside that can get cleaned out. Um, so, yeah, man, I mean, a lot of your finishes, which, you know, which and mine too now, I mean, a lot of us have walked away from so much of that because of the labor aspect of it. I think it's gorgeous, but there's lots of labor and then it's tough depending on where you're at. It's tough to make up for that labor in the final product cost that you're getting to a client. Yeah. So and you're, a talking lot of, of, you're talking about water polishing right now, right? Water polishing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, so, right. So you can go everything from a, you know, a five inch single head that may take you longer um, that may only about 300, $400 for a good alpha or something like that. Um, all the way to a $5,000 Clindex, you know, a three head, which may get you through the job quicker, but your upfront cost is significantly higher, you know, by what? Again, you're talking about polishers. You're talking about a planetary polisher versus a single head polisher. Yeah. Yeah. Those, yeah. So that goes to the next part of that question, which uh, was cost or, or tools needed for right. polishing and coloring. Yeah. You and I acid edge. Uh-huh. We don't we don't water polish, but some people do water polish. Dusty does a little bit of water polishing, not much. He mainly does it right. because he does some slurry and he's just taking the slurry off. That's the only right. reason he's doing it. But yeah, there's there's definitely levels of that. I think anybody. Well, I guess why I'm bringing that up is it was just a minute ago there was somebody and I can't remember on what forum. Um, it was a woman and she was super excited to get started and moving from, I think, whatever industry she was in. And she made a lot of really cool stuff. But um, as I remember right, they were smaller things. They were still gorgeous, but they were things like, you know, that you'd set your coffee cups, you know, over by the coffee bar or whatever the case may be. 
And every one of these pieces, although I thought they were stunning, they were all processed. You know, they were all polished, you know, to expose the, the glass or the stone and all this kind of stuff. And, and when I looked at that, as again, let's say, as you're just asking me, well, what does the startup cost? Okay, well, what do you want to get into? Well, I really have this amazing idea and I want to make all these small things and okay. And, and I really like the terrazzo and I still want to, I want to sell them for $35. But at the end of the day, you figure out you're $32 into it. You know what I mean? That's, that's the tough part of this business. Agreed. Yeah. I was going to say anybody that does water polishing for a while gets tired of it pretty quick. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not a fun thing to do. Uh, especially once your shop gets cold and you get in winter months and you're water polishing, there's no way to keep that moisture from getting into your clothes and you're freezing right. And uh, it's just miserable. And if you have an electric polisher, which most people start off with electric because it's cheaper, they don't have to have a big air compressor and the polisher itself is cheaper. But if you have an electric one, you're going to get shocked. There's no way around it. You have a GFCI outlet and you have the GFCI on the polisher and you're wearing rubber gloves, you're wearing rubber boots. It doesn't matter. You're going to get shocked. It's just part of it. You're going to get shocked continuously. You get the tingle in your fingers the whole time. Exactly. So, and then you're like, screw this. I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a pneumatic one. And then you move to that. But. And then you get back to the compressor. Because you got to have a very large CFM compressor, which is not your little, you know, $500 one. Now you're back up into three, five to $7,000. Yeah. And then it's just the time and the sludge and everything that it entails. You know, you have, mm-hmm. when you're water polishing, that goes somewhere. It's going to go down into your washout area and then you got to contain it and then you got to deal with it somehow. What do you do with it? I don't know what to do with it. What do you do with it? I don't know. Right. So there's all that. Sludge buster. Out. Wasn't there a sludge buster? Yeah. But all that did was just put it in a container. What do you do with it when it's in a container? Yeah. I never At some point that. you got to get rid of it. What do you do with it? You can't just put yeah. it out. I tried putting a dumpster once. I got in trouble. My last property, I, I buried it in my neighbor's land because he was never there. He didn't, he, he just bought the land as an investment. So I dig a hole, bury it, and then cover it up and then like sprinkle leaves and twigs over it and hope he wouldn't notice. <laughs> Someday when somebody buys that land, they start excavating to like build a house. They're going to find all kinds of buried stuff over there. But yeah, I mean, there's no good way to get rid of it. And uh, that's, that's the downside of going that route. You know, Dusty, in the classes we've been teaching, he's moved away from the polishers and he's using, I think, a, a wet sander, pneumatic wet sander. I know. I, I, if he's got the one that I they're you they, and I think it's still out there, one that you actually just dropped the line into a five-gallon bucket for water. But again, it was a sander that took pretty serious CFM. I think it was like somewhere between five and eight CFM to run that sander efficiently because I had them send me out one. And, you know, I don't have it because I don't do all the the spraying. And so I never invested in the big, good compressor. And so it didn't work for crud for me. Yeah. But he went that route, which is a little bit, uh, it's less aggressive. And I'd say probably a little bit easier if you're just doing very light processing than a water polisher and, you know, the whole thing. Sure. But yeah, you got to think about that. And then the cost of that, that there's definitely a lot of costs associated with going that route, which is, you know. Why we acid etch, but those finishes mm-hmm. are different. Those finishes are more as cast. You know, we're not uh, we're not exposing aggregate and doing all those things. So, and we're not doing slurry. If you do slurry, you got to get rid of the slurry. Whether you do it dry or you do it wet, you got to get rid of it. So you don't just leave it on the surface and seal it. Agreed. So there's that. Uh, coloring. 
we do everything integral. I, I say, I, I kind of speak for me and you, but um, I don't do any topicals. I do everything integral. So integral pigments in my concrete. Dusty used to do a lot of topical coloring when he first was doing Dustycrete. He would kind of cast everything in white or gray and then color it after the fact. But Dusty's moved away from that. Now he does most everything integral. And if he does use any topical coloring, which is always a water-based with Dusty, it's only to create a slight accent. Very, very subtle. So he's not using it to, to change the color of the concrete. He's using it just to pick up some texture in the surface. So it's just a, an accent for him. Right. Uh, but topical coloring, you know, there's different ways to apply it. Depends on what you're doing. Uh, some people use HVLP sprayer. You know, if you go to World of Concrete, you'll see the guys out in the artisan area using HVLP sprayers to apply colorants to concrete, pump up sprayers, you know, whatever. If you're doing integral, then it's just pigment in the concrete. So, yeah, I agree. I'm the same. If I pull any topical stain out, it's solely for enhancement of some sort. That's it, nothing else. Uh, all of us have learned long ago, uh, you know, painting the concrete. You can come up with some cool, really cool stuff. Don't get me wrong, but they just don't, they're not very durable at, yeah. at the end of the day. Uh, it's once again, it's one of those kind of things that the durability at that point, once you've painted whatever you've painted on there, whether that be a Picasso or trees or, you know, whatever you did or marbling, whatever the case may be. Then, because that's not necess- it's not really part of the concrete, so it's going to wear different than the concrete itself, which then you need to put some kind of coat, you know, some kind of film, and that film, along with whatever coloring you put on, really becomes the difference in, than the wear of the concrete. I'm not a fan of that. There was, same with Dusty. There was a time I was, because you could do some, or what appeared to you to be like, man, look, look what I can do. But then you found out pretty quickly, like, oh, boy, that that just the life of that did not do very well. Well, in Phoenix, all of the restaurants and bars, you know, they're getting these guys to come in and do cast in place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really common. And uh, so you'd go into these restaurants and bars. They have these cast in place countertops. They're always done in, in, you know, they probably came off a truck. So they're gray. And then they would do either um, an acid stain or water based stain over it to make them dark brown or whatever. Usually dark brown. That was yeah. kind of the, the color. I remember the acid stains were huge. Oh, massive. Yeah. And then they do, you know, a solvent sealer over the top of it. But in every one of these restaurants and bars that had this, wherever the POS was, wherever the register was, or wherever the bartender was passing drinks to the waitresses, it was always gone. It was just gray. Mm-hmm. It didn't last long. Any, anywhere, anywhere that had high use, those colors came off. And, you know, if you go to a... Um, there's a lot of outdoor shopping areas in Phoenix, Scottsdale, and a lot of acid stained concrete on the exterior walkways. Same thing. It was really interesting because the paths that people take would wear those colors off, and uh, and you would see it. And right. you know, it's interesting from just a design viewpoint to kind of see the paths people take because you could see it in the concrete. It, the the stain was gone. That's the downside of it. You ready for question three? Bring it. It kind of goes right into what we were just talking about. Number three, the design and color options available for concrete countertops and sinks and how to choose the right one for a specific project. The design and color options. Well, I think, I mean, I'd go to the end of the conversation first and start with, well, where's the project? What's the expectation of the life of that project? 
and then start from there and work yourself backwards. Um, there was a project I did years ago for a winery and they have a tasting room in Sutter Creek, California, and they brought me their label. I don't know if I, I mean, this is years ago. I don't even have to pull up the picture, but they brought up this label and the, the label, I'm going to say, make this conversation easy. The label looked like a rainbow, right? And it, so forth. Not necessarily rainbow colors, but kind of like that. And that's where I started. Like, okay, this is what you're looking for. They're like, yeah. And so at that point, okay, where is this going? Oh, it's going in a tasting room, a tasting bar. We're expecting X amount of people to come through. Okay. And to me, that's when you make your choices on the availability for coloring. I could have painted this logo on, you know, like the, you know, remember the old, you rip some paper and then you put a color out and that yeah. would leave a line and rip another piece of paper. And so that certainly could have been a choice, but I knew that wouldn't last very long under that condition. So all topically applied, whatever, uh, no. So then you have to go, okay, well, what's your next choice? And so your next choice is if you're looking for that durability, you need to figure out how to not just use the pigment properly, but cure the concrete in a way that accents those colors in a way to bring it out. And then ultimately that's going to last longer. So that's probably what I'd like. So yeah, start at the end first and work your way backwards. Design options. That's unlimited. We talked about that in question number one. Design and color options available for concrete are unlimited. And I always ask the, the client, do you have any design drawings you have, anything you can send me as a starting point? Because if they just come to me and like, hey, we want a concrete sink, dude, uh, there's an infinite number of things we could do. I need a direction to start with before I can start, you know, kind of brainstorming. So I always ask for that. But as far as color goes, I'm a little bit different in I only offer three colors. I offer natural white, natural gray, and a, and a mix of the two, white and gray, which is a limestone color. And I've been doing that for, uh, again, a long time. Now, I'll do any color they want, but there's a premium for that. And typically, it's 30% of the project total, and it's going to pretty much double the timeline. Because once you contact you know, a company that's going to make custom pigment for you, there's a long timeline. A lot of these companies now are starting to really increase the cost on it, too, because they don't want to do it. So you have to buy 25 pounds or 50 pounds of it. So there's also a big cost associated with that. But, you know, then you're going to have to get that pigment. You have to get it in. You're going to have to cast a sample, cure it, send it to the client for approval. They approve it. They don't approve it, whatever. And, you know, it's the whole thing. So if, if it's a $10,000 project and you say, yeah, I can do it, but it's going to add 30% to project total. And well, now that $10,000 project is $13,000. They're like, well, natural gray looks pretty good. It does look yeah, good, doesn't right. it? I love natural good. gray. Better and better. Yeah. Yeah. Honesty in materials, authenticity. So for me, I like that. I think a lot of, there's a lot of times there's paralysis by analysis. People just get too focused on the smallest little minute color change between this color and that color. You know, back in the day, we were talking about Murray Clark on one of these forums, but Murray Clark had this company, Blue Concrete, back in the day. Mm -hmm. I loved Murray, but every time I'd call, his wife would pick up. She, she was always like, you know, thank you for calling Blue Colors. How can I help you? And it was like their home phone. Hey, is Murray there? Let me check. No, he's in the factory right now. I can take a message and him call you back. Yeah, do that. His factory was like a little metal shed in his backyard. That was his factory. So I always cracked up when she would do that. Like, you know, try to present like, you know, he's in the factory and they have like a whistle that blows for lunch every day. And all the guys, you know, march out of the factory and take their break. Anyways, I digress. 
Murray would say they could color match any Benjamin Moore paint color. Well, Benjamin Moore has like three different paint fans, like you know, his color decks. And so I'd meet with the client and I'd bring these three paint fans and they'd say, well, what are color options? I'd say, any one of those. Pick a color. And they would, it, it was the worst thing I could have done. They would just get so hyper-focused. They would be looking at this one and looking at that one. Like, mm, which one do we like? Well, this one like picks up the, and I'm like, looking. they're all the same color. They're all exactly the same color. And concrete on its best day is going to shift colors. You know, I cast it twice. I cast it on Tuesday and I cast it on Friday. Same pigment, same concrete, everything. They could be a slightly different shade just because of atmospheric conditions, temperature, all that kind of stuff. They can right. shift slightly. So I try to get that across people like, hey, we can do any color, but just understand concrete's real material. The color can be darker this day, be lighter. It's going to change in time, the way it looks today, the way it looks a year from now, the way it looks from 10 years from now. It's going to change. Okay, okay. But then, you know, six months go by. So in and out which is a burger chain that um, they're going to be opening up one... Uh, where is it, Florida? I, I read recently or someplace. Anyways, but In N Out's a uh, restaurant chain, burger chain. They have burgers, fries, milkshakes. That's it. They don't have empanadas. They don't have burritos. They don't have any of that stuff. Right. Burgers, fries, milkshakes lying around the block. They make it easy. You know, there, there's no paralysis by analysis. You don't get up to the drive through line and have to sit there for 20 minutes looking at the menu trying to figure out what you want. You're going to get a burger, you're going to get a fries, you're going to get a milkshake. That's it. And that has served me well in a sense of let me limit the choices. Let me explain to them why the choices are what they are. Authenticity materials, real, you know, I love things that are real. I love things that people know what they are. When I do purple concrete, if I do pink concrete, it could be a lot of materials. You don't necessarily know that it's concrete. When you walk into a room and you have a bubblegum pink concrete countertop, that could be Corian. That could be anything. But when it's natural gray and it has that beautiful slight model of color, modeling the color to it, you know it's concrete. Everybody knows what it is. So I explain that to, to clients, the authenticity materials. And you'd be amazed how that conversation and explaining that it's going to increase the cost by 30% and it's going to double the timeline, how they'll choose a standard color like that instantaneously. So anyways, that's just my opinion. No, you're right. Years ago, I did a violet vanity. I mean, big, bright violet. And that's what they wanted. And uh, yeah, you know, just just the pigment. And you said... And that was one of these conversations. I'm just digressing to what you were saying. Since I still work hand in hand with quite a few of these pigment people, I just want to interject that it's not necessarily that they don't want to do it. It's that, just to get an example, per my violet vanity, this was a custom color. But I'm telling you, this vanity was all of 24 inches by 22 inches. You know, so it was... You know, not 80 pounds of material. Okay. But the pigment itself, I mean, maybe I needed a pound. But no one wants, I I shouldn't say that. The difficulty is calling these people, asking them to put the time in to create this custom pigment, violet. And then I want to spend $8 for one pound that for me, $8 a pound is a lot. But for them... Maybe it took them three hours to finally formulate it. Well, I mean, that's employee time. And then package it. And you know what I mean? Yada, yada. So I think if people instead were called up and it was $200 a pound to cover the expenses of truly doing it, then they would probably sell one pound and five pound packages. But otherwise, yeah, that, that's why the minimums come on 
because of the labor involved to create it. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's amazing anybody will do it, honestly. Yeah. Because it is a, it's a big time suck. I saw, you know, back when Sean Hayes uh, was Buddy Rhodes Concrete, and I went out there, I went to their, their color area. Oh, the lab, yeah. Yeah, and it was all done by humans. It's not done by a machine. There's not, like, they don't right. put underneath, like, some color scope of some sort that then spits out a formulation. No, a person looks at the color, and then they mix up pigment, and they mix up a little bit of concrete, and they put it in a little plastic Petri dish, and they look at it. Nope, needs a little bit more green. That a little more green to it. Stir it up again. Do it again. Mm-hmm. And it's just this process of again and again and again and again. It's amazing that anybody would even offer that service. So yeah, it just is what it is. In my experience, if you can limit the the choices, and you make the choices, there's enough disparity in the colors. Meaning, I do white, natural gray, and a, and a medium gray. People can make a decision pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent, especially from a business standpoint, because. Anybody listening to this who's, who does a business, you know, consistently, I would say at least three times a week, I get a call from somebody, a tech support kind of thing, and, and it's related to a pigment. And that pigment may have come from a company. You don't know what the pigment blend is, and then it acts weird, and something goes sideways in the mix, and this and that. And, and that's where we... As a business, you have to come back and go, okay, how do you limit, or not how, not how, it set up where you limit the choices per your, you know, in and out burger analogy, limit the choices, but not limit them solely because of, of um, that, but also limit it because there's a lot of variance in pigments. I mean, I literally, and I'm not going to say who the company was, but they were using a silver huh. when they called me. And I'm like, well, give me a minute. Let me call those guys. Let's see what's going into their silver. I mean, I don't know. Is it a mica? I mean, now, again, this is the years of being with Blue and and uh, Buddy Road. So I'm like, hmm. I literally couldn't get off my head. I'm like, well, there's got to be like, I don't know, a white in there, maybe a mica. And, and then they send me back the sheet that says, no, there's a <laughs> – I'm, I'm laughing. There's a black, a yellow – and a red. I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> Are you serious? And then I called back to the tech support. He just pulled up the same thing, the tech data sheet. And he's like, yeah, John, I'm like, okay, let me just being candid with you. How much black do you think I'd have to load to get silver? He's like, I, I don't know. Okay. Well, how much red, how much red, Brandon, how much red do you think you'd have to load into white concrete to turn it silver. Uh, I mean, what does silver even mean? Because I'm thinking silver is a sheen, not so much a color. Yeah, silver like silverware. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. You know, yeah, like a, a true silver. Yeah, I, I don't care how much, I don't care if you just, you know, put some in your hand and blew some carbon black in, you're not going to turn it that color. Yeah. And you're not going to do it with a red, and you're not, certainly not going to do it with a yellow. So my point being with that is, and I, I'm not calling whoever, I mean, maybe they did find some amazing formulation out of those to create a silver pigment, but um, you just don't know. Yeah. So limit your colors, limit those to things that you do know that you have better control of. Then you could probably open up your catalog that, and offer 10 colors or 20, but make sure that those colors are ones that you're familiar with. So you know exactly how to modify and change them. Exactly. Because if you add red to concrete, it foams it up. If you add, you know, a heavy uh, carbon black to concrete, it weakens it dramatically. 
there's all kinds yeah. there's all kinds of things that pigments do and by limiting what I did by limiting the colors I limited my chances of things going sideways agreed so you know that's because back in the day when people would just you know go through Bridge and Moore and pick a color it was a wild card I don't know what this is going to do to the concrete who knows what's going to do to the concrete right and you know the thing was back then too those pigment manufacturers had a vested interest in selling me as much pigment as they could so they'd always send me these things and tell me to load them like 8% or 9% loading, which was insane. So that was the other side of it, which did I really need those loadings? Probably not. But it was like Hiram Ball back in the day. They they set the polymer loadings at kind of like what's the maximum the concrete can take? Not what does it need, but what can it take? Was right. kind of the the general way because they'd sell more polymer. So, anyways, there was there well, that's was that. business. That's yeah, I guess. That's not the way I, I do things. Yeah, but, I'm not saying I agree with it because yeah. Even during those days, there was a there was a color that was very popular for me for a while, and had a run. It was, and I'm telling you, it was like a 0.4 percent loading, 0.4 percent on on 50 percent of the weight. So 0.4 percent loading, and it was a very popular color. And then I ordered some new stuff in, and all of a sudden, it went from the recommendation was six percent loading. Huh? Yeah. I'm like, well, that can't be. So I went ahead and put my standard, like, you know, whatever. Someone messed up on the label. Put the 0.4% in. Nope, couldn't see it. And like, and then by the way, so this goes back to my, you know, having, know what you're using. And then this is also a pigment that I could, I had gotten used to loading at various rates. So, you know, loaded at one and a half percent gave me a certain color and versus the 0.4% and so forth and so on. And I'm like, and that's really what happened is one day I turned around and loaded it at a 2% rate to match another project in the home. And all of a sudden, yeah, that didn't work at all. And that's when I had to call the manufacturer and be like, hey, I'm not sure what's going on here. And then I'm like, oh, we had to make some changes. Why is that? Oh, you know, we can't blame it on COVID then. So I don't, can't remember, you know. And, and then what, what it turned out is they were from a business standpoint and i'm not saying this is wrong from a business standpoint they were loading a filler on board now that they got fairly inexpensively to stretch that pigment out so that now to achieve that color instead of 0.4% you needed 6%. Of course, and they're charging the same amount per pound they're always charging. Correct. But you're using you know 18 times more than you did before. Yeah, that's so yeah, so anyway. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, number four, John, the maintenance and repair of concrete countertops and sinks, including how to remove stains, seal, and maintain the original appearance. The maintenance and repair of concrete countertops and sinks, including how to remove stains. That's really your wheelhouse, you know. What, how, how should people maintain? Well, it's my, yes, I'm going to say it's my wheelhouse, but again, that, that, that puts on a, Puts everybody into an uncomfortable sealer conversation. Well, I mean, okay. and, and I well, guess where I'm going is this. Let's say, yeah. let's start off this, if they use the topical sealer. And there's a lot of topical sealers, and they have different performances. But if you use a topical mm-hmm. sealer, how should somebody maintain a concrete countertop? Oh, just, you know, low abrasive cleaners, um, you know, wipe them down, try not to scuff them, try not to scratch them. You know, don't don't put abrasive things on that you're dragging around. So, you know, if if you're into stoneware, 
and those kind of things as your coffee cups or your or your plates and these kind of things, then avoid those kind of th- things. Uh, from a staining, so th- that becomes, in my opinion, now without going on a whole thing because not all topicals are same. Not all plastic films are the same. They're not. Some of them, you know, actually do allow some things through, and those become more difficult. But if you put a film on there that, let's say, is built to be, you know, to the best of ability, doesn't, you know, doesn't go bad until it's scratched through, well, then, you know, you really don't have as much concern about staining per se. But if oil did get through, that becomes very difficult to remove. So the whole idea of pulstices and drawing this stuff out or, or you know, using a uh, plumber's heat of some sort and, and instead driving the oil back down deeper, there is no simple answer to that. So the simple answer to that or this most simple answer in that, that situation is to remove the existing sealer as best you can, and then deal with the stains, and then reseal. That's the only choice. Yeah. True spot repair under those circumstances. Um, I'm going to just say that's that's not not as practical. Gotcha. So that's a topical. How how would somebody maintain um, a reactive sealer like ICT? A reactive technology. Okay, then then those would be the situations where uh, similar to a. Let's say, a, what am I thinking of? Um, a marble or a soapstone where now a poultice of some sort. You can take that, draw it, you know, or uh, take heat. Well, I call it a plumber's torch technique. And you could drive those oils in. I was actually on a job or a house with Ian Winlow up in Canada one time. And we went into a house. And him and I removed an oil stain because <clears throat> I was up there visiting him. And literally, I'm like, again, one of those situations where like, we're going to use what? I'm like, yeah, man. He goes, man, I can't. I'm, we're going to be in the client's home. This is, I'm telling you, this is one of, the, one of those situations I was laughing because the clients were home. Gorgeous house, by the way, overlooking uh, whatever the ocean is right there. I, I can't, um, uh, I don't know, Puget Sound. I, I got to pull up MapQuest. Anyway, it was gorgeous. The setting of their home was gorgeous. When we got there, he was adamant, like, come on, man. You can't just pull out a plumber's torch and go after these people's countertops. I'm like, man, that's the only way, seriously. So he ended up grabbing the clients and going, like, on a walk with them, you know, like, to talk and this and that. And then I took the plumber's torch, circled around. And what ultimately happened is it was very superficial, and the the oil bubbled right back out. So it kind of told me that you know, this was an oops, somebody left it early after install kind of thing. But yeah, so pulses, heat, that's an easy way to main, maintain ICT or let's say reactive technology. I apologize. Um, well, it's not maintain, that's repair. speaking. Yeah. And when you say pull, oh, the maintain would, yeah. When you say poultice, what are you referring to there? Like, what is it? What, how do you make yours? A poultice really is just anything that creates a draw. So, I mean, there's, there can be water-based. You can make them yourself. What you need is a powder of some sort, whether that be a, um, uh, a DE or baking soda or flour or cornstarch. 
and you mix that material, that powder into a pastish form. And then you put that paste. Now, now we're calling that the poultice. <clears throat> you put that pastish material on the surface and then typically you cover that with plastic or something. The idea is you don't want it to dry too fast. But as that poultice is drying, it creates a draw and will pull the stains out of the counter, pull the material causing the stain out of the countertop. Gotcha. Yeah. That, that's I, the most. Of, ahead, I, I always heard most common poultice was baking soda and acetone mixed together applied to the surface and then allowed to draw. But acetone can leave a dull mark on a lot of countertops. Right. Well, Correct? and it flashes too quickly, actually. Yeah. So the, a better choice would be, um, but again, a salt from a, let's say from a solvent point of view, I would be probably an isopropyl alcohol. But again, that, that can leave marks. That's just nature of the beast. It is a solvent or otherwise would be water. Okay. Makes sense. So for me, that'd be repairs. That, that's when there's some damage, somebody did something, you have to repair it. But what does the daily maintenance look like on a ICT sealed countertop? Uh, I would say kind of the same, just non-abrasive, wipe them down. Anything to I avoid? Mean, I, I recommend... Any cleaners to avoid? Uh, heavy solvent-based cleanings or ones with limonene, like the um, citric cleans and those kind of things. Really? Because those... Yeah, those will degrade. The limonene, yeah, degrades. Huh, I didn't know uh, that. Specifically silicates, yeah. Yeah, and most of your reactive technologies are built around silicate-based technologies, silane siloxane technologies, and limonenes, which are great. You know, we all seen those ones, citric cleaners or citric clean, yeah. those kind of things. A lot of times yeah, they, paint removers have that. Right, they're yeah. built to, to break that stuff down. Huh, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad you told me that because uh, I've used those cleaners before on concrete for like removing paint when there's dried paint on a surface. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah. I won't do that again. But things no, like but other than that, simple green, standard, non-abrasive, Clorox. Yeah. You know, Clorox. I I get like That's a, open water. Yeah, I get the um, Clorox uh, bathroom cleaner. I spray that in there and wipe it down. It mm -hmm. tends to be fine. Yeah. Okay. No, that's a good one too. I, I mean, that's what I recommend. Multi-purpose, Clorox multi-purpose, any of those, they're really simple, um, but not just that, you know, because they are uh, bactericidal. So they're, they're great for that kind of stuff. If, but they do, you know, does come with that kind of Cloroxy smell. Yeah. Which I like, honestly. There you go. My wife hates Otherwise, it. Otherwise, no, like I mean, vinegar and baking soda are two of your natural cleaners. So you know, a vinegar solution. So that would be like a Windex and vinegar. Any of those, you know, if we're looking at a uh, material that can be picked up at the grocery store, those are, those work very well as daily maintenance kind of things. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right, John, question number five, our last and final question, the latest trends and innovations in concrete countertops and sinks, including new materials, techniques, and technologies that are being used to create unique and creative designs. The latest trends and innovations in concrete countertops. What would that be, John? Materials, techniques, technologies. Sometimes I wonder, let's say my view of it is a bit tunneled vision. So I think a lot of times I'm not, you know, I guess where I'm going is I could talk innovation all day long from the point of view that I'm seeing innovation come from, and that's materials. 
materials, hands down, from my view, is what continues to innovate in this in his industry for those people who want to be part of that innovation. And that just means the, the, the mixes themselves, high density, stronger, uh, less prone to everything in the very pr- beginning of this podcast that we talked about, meaning, you know, staining and wear, um, you know, ultra high performance concrete designs, acid resistant concretes, you know, sealer performances, higher penetrating, higher resistances. That to me is the innovation side. You, so I'm going to turn that one to you. So to me, it's materials. If there's, you may see something else in, in design and that I just don't see because honestly, I, I just don't see that. Well, I'm I think, not a part of that. I think, I think the two are symbiotic. The design possibilities today are largely due in part to the material advancements that have happened. The materials, when I first started 20 years ago, which was essentially quickcrete and rebar, there's only so much you could do with that. There's only so many designs you could create. I couldn't create a one-inch thick, you know, sculptural piece of furniture using quickcrete and rebar. So it just sure. wasn't possible. So a lot of the design uh, possibilities are in direct correlation to material advancements. But if we're talking about the latest trends and innovations, you know, I really look to what Dusty is doing. Dusty, Dusty Crete really started, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago is when Dusty really started putting all his time and energy into developing and refining that aesthetic that he has. And mm-hmm. it started off very heavy-handed, as almost all things do. In the beginning, you can do anything, so you do everything. You know, he would he would do super heavy texture and 20 different colors and do half the concrete dark brown and half the concrete charcoal and, you know, all, right. all this stuff. But in time, Dusty has continually refined and refined and refined and refined and nuanced it. And today, it's much, much more timeless. And in my opinion, it's just so beautiful. And not that what he's doing back in the day was bad, but you look back at it and, and Dusty will tell you, I don't do that anymore. Like that thing he was doing back then, he's he's refined it so far beyond there. But his current way of doing things, his methods, his materials, the techniques he uses, I would say that's very, very on trend at the moment. What Dusty yeah. is doing, you know, you're going to see that in Starbucks in five to 10 years. You're going to see that in McDonald's in five to 10 years because he's on the trend right now. And those those guys pick up a decade later. So a decade from now, you know, kind of like Live Edge Wood is everywhere now. That was really on trend yeah, 10 years true, ago. Yeah, that's true, huh? You're absolutely yeah. right. Edison bulbs, 10 years ago, on trend. White subway tile, 10 years ago on trend. Now you see it mm-hmm. in McDonald's. Right. So I would say that the the aesthetic that Dusty's, Dusty's created, this very, you know, refined... Stone-like isn't the right word because he's not trying to recreate stone. He's not, like, doing stamps and all this kind of stuff. But it has the fissures and the texture of stone in a way. But it's so nuanced. It's very, very, very nuanced. And I'd say that is extremely on trend at the moment. So in my opinion, that's probably one of the latest trends is what he's doing. Uh, but then, yeah, material innovation has really opened up the possibility. So I have a, a furniture collection I've been working on for a few years now. I think three years I've been working on it. But the materials allow me to do that. And really the material developments that you and I have made, not to make this a Concrete Pro podcast, but the material developments we've made with the density and the lack of air 
has really opened that up because when I started down this road with this furniture line, it was before Kodiak Pro. And the material I was using at that point had a lot of entrained air in it. So the chairs I was casting three years ago, the outside of the surface looks like a lunar landscape. It's just thousands of air pockets, yeah. probably about the size of uh, M&M, maybe about that size. So Skittles, M&Ms, like that size of air hole, pretty big. The whole backsides and sides. The inside would be pretty good. It'd be little pinners, but it wouldn't have any big air pockets. But the outside, where the air kind of got trapped on the form, would have these big air pockets. But since we've developed these materials, the outside comes up 95% cleaner than the old material. And that just has to do with the way air is able to escape out of the mix. And so that has really helped too. So when I finally, one of these days, release this furniture line, the material advancements will have made the quality and the finish of those products far superior to what they would have been three years ago. And that just has to do with materials. Uh, so I'd say that's an innovation for sure. Yeah. That's that, I mean, that's what I see most of the time is, or, uh, and I, and I'm willing to say maybe I just see it because that's my focus. Yeah. Well, it's, it's what we've been putting a lot of time and energy into for a while now, but for me, mm-hmm. because you're the chemist and you love chemistry I'm not a chemist. I don't love chemistry. So for me, the, what it does for design possibilities is amazing. And yeah, uh, well, I guess what I'm saying, and I'm interrupting. I apologize. When I when I look at the innovation of materials, <clears throat> what I end up well, not just looking, the, you know, the people like who I was speaking with today, it goes as as much into like what's the future of bridge decks? You know, <laughs> what is what are they trying to do? Um, you know, after the the latest storms in California and and rebuilding things that structures may have came down, that concrete that was twenty years old. Well, you know, what where is materials moved to? So if that happens again, these kind of things are. So that's the material advancement that I keep seeing. That's combat you know combating everything from you know self cleaning concrete, self healing concrete create, uh, you know, lower CO2 or the ability for your, your concrete itself to absorb CO2. I mean, yes. And with that, the, the the lifespans, so to create a lighter, the longer lifespan, the concrete needs to be built in a way that can't be 5,000 PSI anymore. needs to be 20, you know, so that to me is the advancements that I keep seeing. And then the same with stealing technologies. I mean, there are some, again, working with the uh, same thing, raw material manufacturers, you know, there's no secret that they're always trying to combat yellowing and VOC and, uh, you know, health concerns. And so the only difficulty is those become the high thing, not the, not performance per se. So. True. But that's where I see material advancements continuing to escalate, hopefully into things that continue to be healthier for people, more environmentally friendly, stronger, and then bridging all those gaps in between. 100%. So Concrete Heroes Quest, let me hit that really quick. We have a three and a half day workshop coming up April 26th through the 29th in Napa, California at Joe Bates Shop. And this is going to be a very deep dive class on post-tensioned furniture, essentially. Joe needs a conference table for his shop. So we're going to work together as a team to design, fabricate, cast, cure, and seal this complex table. And and 
So this is a really fun class. It's a different class. We launched it two and a half, three weeks ago. We've had 14 registrations as of today, which is incredible. It's going to be a, a great time. Martin Haddock and Ashley are coming over. They're not included in that 14. So, you know, with them, that's 16. Then me, you, and John, or me, you, and Joe, that's 19 people. So as of right now, well, you just, it's going to be a, a lot of people. I'm a lot just of fun. going to interrupt Go for a second. Yeah. Digress. Well, now that we're talking about the Heroes Quest, that in of itself goes to material advancements. Look, I mean, this thinking, just you and I, and I'm not going to let the, you know, the info slip, but we're already focusing on new advancements in post-tension techniques that weren't available five years ago. Yeah. And we're going to be showing those. Yeah. And so that's, that's, I guess that's where I'm coming. So I see that as a materials advancement in, into the things that again, was not available just um, as I typically say a minute ago. And those are some techniques that we're going to be incorporating into this quest. Exactly. Exactly. I had, uh, I want to say a Serho contacted me a few days ago. Maybe Simon Tipple, but I don't think it's Simon. I think it's Serho contacted me. Not 100% sure. But anyways, he's doing a um, post-tension table. And I walked him through because he'd gotten some bad information from some other training or online video. I don't know where he got the information from on how to do post-tensioning, but it was incorrect. And there are important things to do with post-tensioning to create the, strong, the strongest piece you can make and to withstand the forces that are going to be applied to that piece. And what he was going to do is actually going to have the opposite effect on the piece. It's going to make it weaker than had he done nothing. Mm. So anyways, the point is, if you come to this class, we're going to teach you the right way to do things, tell you what not to do, uh, because that's also important. But it's just going to be a, a really, really fun class. And uh, so if you're interested... Go to ConcreteDesignSchool.com and you can click on the link at the top and it'll take you to that page. You can read about it. If you have any questions, email me, John or Joe, and we can help answer your questions. And we hope to see you there. When we started this podcast, John, you said you had some things you want to talk about. What do you want to talk about? Well, I guess we touched on it for a minute and then I didn't go too deep into it, which to me is still based on material advancement. So today talking to some raw material manufacturers if anybody doesn't know this, silica fume, like I'm going to say, of course, it's not natural, but natural silica fume is becoming more of a scarcity because for silica fume to be produced means something has to be burnt in a kiln. And most of those things being burnt is, you know, a CO2, global warming, et cetera, et cetera. And so within a year, I'm being told by one of the big manufacturers, they're working on a synthetic silica fume that it'd be even more reactive, same benefits. So instead of being just, because they're like, well, there's already things like that. They already find ground glass. Like, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something along the lines of an actual silica fume that's environment, you know, hopefully covers a lot of bases. It becomes environmentally friendly, um, satisfies, and ultimately be can use as a replacement and actually give higher strength and higher performance than the currently kiln-made silica fumes. That was one of them. What was another one? Um, so right now, you know, a focus is on non-chloride accelerators or chloride accelerators, aluminum cements. And so I was talking to a raw material manufacturer that's 
that they're going to send me some material that can replace those at a smaller quantity and actually give a better benefit for bang for buck from a, a, a very different chemistry. So not a chloride, not a non-chloride, not an illuminant, but will create the performance of those things, but from a totally different material. So that's a material advancement to me. So these are the things that I see on the horizon that are coming along that's going to continue to make the materials for those people who want to be a part of it, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, continue to escalate the materials we're using in the creating artisan material, all, you know, the, the quality of those materials continue to scale up and scale up and scale up. So it's, you know, it's going to be an exciting time as long as we don't, don't drop back into COVID shutdowns. Yeah, or we don't have a polar shift and the oceans create 2,000-foot tsunamis and we all get wiped out. There you go. I was listening to Joe Rogan yeah, the other day and it got me all freaked out. I called Aaron. I'm like, oh, my God, polar shift, 2,000-foot tsunamis. <laughs> That's all right. We've got to move to the Rockies. Yeah, I think even we'll then, you would, I don't think you'd survive it there, but, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows these things? I don't know. I'm at the. I'm right at the 2,800 elevation. So. You're screwed. You're in California. The whole thing's gonna fall off. I know, ocean. but man, look at I. I become a beachfront property instead of my Sierras. You're gonna be an ocean bottom there property. Go. Is what's gonna happen? No, 2,000 oh, yeah. feet, man. I'm well above it, dude. I I don't know like how I got on all this stuff, but I I was listening to Joe Rogan. Then I watched that uh, Ancient Apocalypse show on Netflix, and uh, yeah, yeah. I'm of the opinion that there's been advanced civilizations in the past that got totally decimated by something. And, um, yeah. Well, then you don't want to watch HBO. What's HBO? Came? It's actually a pretty good one. Last of Us? Well, I, let's say I'm enjoying it. Yeah, The Last of Us? Oh, I was watching it this morning, dude. Yeah. The the fungus coming out of the mouth. The fungus. Yeah. It's the, I, well, they went, I mean, like all of them, they embellish a little bit, but, you know, post-AIDS crisis, antifungal technologies have come a, a very long way. So I'm not going to say it's impossible for it to happen, but I was just, as the first thing, and I guess that's me from my medical side, and I'm listening to this, I'm like, uh, no, not so much. <laughs> well, I mean, they've already proven that parasites can influence your diet. You will have True. huge sugar cravings from parasites. Intestinal parasites will, will make you crave sugar and you'll eat things based on those parasites right it's insane no, yeah it's, it's crazy no that is well that all goes along i mean that becomes a whole thing gut flora uh, health and gut flora uh, you know which part of it's what you're calling parasites yeah i mean you know but that even goes deeper uh, is it a is it a parasite that's normal for us to have because we have parasites i mean we are a living host to, to parasites for those if you didn't know that buddy well dude i know <laughs> it but again you go down to tiktok rabbit hole and people are pulling like four foot tapeworms out of their butts it's like oh, dude. <laughs> that, I, yeah and they're all like doing early. like these parasite cleanses and stuff and talking about all the stuff oh. that's coming out it's like oh man i don't know but the fact that yeah. that parasites you can get these parasites in your digestive system that then influence your cravings is incredible to me but that's i mean it's it's uh it's been proven as it happens so 
yeah, the whole idea with The Last of Us, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, it seems to be a good show. I it like is it. interesting. Yeah. All right, buddy. Anything else? As always, man, good talking to you. It's always good talking to you, John. And let's do it again next week. Sounds good to me. Okie dokie. Have a great one. Talk Adios, to you later. Adios, amigo. <laughs>